Hi, everybody. This is Jerry Zalatris here, Investment Advisors. And I'm joined by John Coverley, our Chief Economist. And once again, we're going to be talking about central banks and foreign exchange. Hi, John. Jerry, how's it going? Good, good. Thank you. I think I've had too much caffeine this morning. <laughs> so we're going to be off to a rolling start. And the key thing to do, I think, to, to begin with, is remind everybody where we are. We're in August. The Fed just hiked uh, last month, Bank of England hiked, ECB hiked. Bank of Japan uh, expanded their uh, yield curve control effectively to 1% from 0.5% for the 10-year bond uh, yield. The RBNZ, the Reserve Bank of New Zealand, they kept rates at 5.5. The RBA kept rates at 4.1. And I believe the Bank of Canada hiked and took rates up to 5%. That sums up the last few months, John, right? And now we've got a really hectic month ahead of us. If we look ahead to September, I'm looking at my diary here, and I think we've got Bank of Canada coming on on September 6th. Uh, the RBNZ is actually this month, August 16th. That's right, they're the early ones. RBA is on September 5th. Uh, Swiss National Bank, don't ignore them, they're on the 21st of September. Bank of Japan on the 22nd of September. Bank of England is on the 21st of September. The European Central Bank is on the 14th of September. And of course, the Fed is on the 20th of September. So I say we take September off as a holiday. What do you think? <laughs> well, I think certainly the end of September would be a good time to go away when the Fed and the Bank of England are at it. <laughs> yes. like, I, and the worst case scenario would be, and I know this is a you know central bank and foreign exchange, so I might as well talk about stocks instead. But there's so many people who are terrified, but not terrified, wary of the September, October, November period in terms of stock market performance, right? Because you've got people trying to tidy up the gains before the end of year. So you've got fund managers jockeying, apparently doing the window dressing and taking some money out of winners and you know, basically adjusting their books for the year-end trading ahead of time. Then you've got all the stock market crashes going back to what, 1929 or something, which happened around October-ish, right? Give or, give or take a month. Right. And you and I both know seasonal things like that may or may not actually happen, but they're so tough to shift from people's minds. So yeah, if all the central banks raise rates in September, then the market crashes. Fair enough? Yeah, I mean, there's always this sense people come back from the holidays in August and it's like a new term starting and people sort of review where they are. They look back and they say, well, now could be a big change. And that often unfolds in September, October. Uh, I mean, talking about stocks, well, we've had this uh, considerable rise in stocks uh, through much of the summer in the US. And so I think people can be looking at that and saying, well, how far can that go? Or is it maybe already faltering? Um, so that's going to be something. And then I think with the central banks, the issue is, have they done enough now? Uh, are they are they going to stop or at least pause? And that's probably something we should discuss. Yes, getting back on topic. Thank you, John. <laughs> so and for the Fed. They raised rates to the 525, 550 range for the Fed funds rate. And we just saw CPI just saw for July come out today, which, right. which I believe is, is, you know, it's still, quote unquote, on the soft side compared to, you know, where it was before. Would you share that view? Yeah, we had a run of numbers early in the year, which spooked the markets because they were a little bit higher than expected. And now we're having a run which are on the low side. Um, some of that, though, is transitory factors on the way down. Remember, we worried about, or at least the Fed worried about transitory factors on the way out, which were artificially boosting inflation. And now you've got things like used car prices, for example, which are falling. And uh, that's not a normal situation. In a normal long-term situation, used car prices are pretty static. 
So they rose rapidly and now they're falling. And that falling, of course, is pulling down the, the price level a bit, pulling down the rate of inflation. So I think, I mean, I think the general story is that US inflation, core inflation, which is what the Fed really focuses on, is coming down quite nicely. And it's probably fair to say it's it's running sort of in the three to four percent range now, if you take out some of the special factors which which should go away, including shelter. Uh, so rent prices, which are still rising rapidly. Take all that out and we're sort of looking at a rate of inflation which is in the three to four percent area. And that's a fantastic improvement on where we've come from, you know, where we were seven, eight, nine percent. Problem is the Fed wants to get to two percent and it's not sure if if that's where we're going at the moment. And I think that's the debate the Fed is having internally. Does it still need to do more to make sure we go all the way down from three to two? What it doesn't want to see is, uh, let's say, this time next year, an inflation rate of 3.2 percent. I mean, that doesn't sound too bad to us, right? But but the Fed would say, no, that's terrible. That's way above our target. We have to do something about that. So so that, I think, is where we are. So the knee-jerk reaction by the FX market after the CPI print was to sell the dollar, right? So I think they're betting like you are, that this is an improvement, quote unquote, that is probably just enough to keep the Fed from raising rates too much further. So we might have another 25 basis points before year end. But then if inflation, like you said, comes down a bit, but doesn't actually go down to the target area, the Fed may not raise rates to try to push it there. They may just keep rates higher for longer, which is one thing that you've been warning about since 2021, I believe that we would have a, you know, inflation would go up, inflation would come down, but may not return to the target area quite as fast as people were hoping for. And in fact, the Fed and other central banks may raise rates and keep them up for, you know, through through as much of 2024 as they can. So do you kind of buy into that? Um, I don't particularly, uh, because I think the economy will slow down one way or the other. I think there's a lot of slowdown still baked in, which hasn't hasn't come through yet. Um, so your, that, your U.S. recession call is still what, 60 percent? Still 60 percent, yes. I'm more likely than not that we will see a recession starting in the next nine nine to 12 months. So and that, that happens, would force the Fed to cut, maybe. Exactly. In fact, the, the story that, that the interest rates will just stay where they are for a very long time really rests on the idea that the economy won't slow down and therefore the Fed will have to wait until inflation comes lower, all the way down to 2 percent, before it would consider cutting rates. I can't see it right. cutting rates if the economy is growing at two, two and a half and inflation is uh, north of three percent. They're, they're just not going to do it. So, I mean, that and that that scenario is where actually the U.S. economy somehow can live with five and a quarter percent rates indefinitely. Maybe that's true. I mean, I, I wouldn't have thought it was true, but, but maybe it's true. That's the scenario. I'm just thinking of nightmare scenarios, John, where basically every major market range trades throughout 2024. So you have the U.S. 10-year yield between 4.3 and 3 or something. You have stock markets maybe up 5%, maybe down 5%, but nobody's really going to care too much because it's not going to be another blistering 40% up, whatever, or 30% down. And you have the dollar stuck in a plus or minus 5% range from current levels. I mean, eh. Doesn't usually work like that, does it? Usually something comes along to, to blow it up. Uh, one way yes, or the other. thank you. And let's hope for disaster somewhere, I guess. But in, in terms of, okay, so your Fed view is rates are up, they need inflation to come down a bit more before we even think about, you know, cutting rates and or the economy to f- stumble badly before they're forced into rate cuts. In terms of the FX market, though, because they were betting on, you know, we had a strong dollar story in 2022, 
then for you know after October, September, October, we got the dollar sell-off against most of the major currencies. And now we're kind of stuck in a range-ish for, for the last couple of months. Now, in the last currency focus that we did, I kind of said, look, you know, we're still dollar bearish, but we're going to start tempering our dollar bear view because so much of it has already happened. So I'm still looking for the euro dollar to go to 120. Now, we stumbled badly after the last push above 112. We came down a bit. Now we're back above 110. And I'm thinking, okay, if the ECB, the rate raised to 375, I think we both agree that there's a strong risk to go to 4%, you know, this year, another 25 basis points. And there's some risk that they might push rates maybe one more time higher or whatever, but they're pretty close to their terminal rate for this particular cycle. And you've got the complaints out of Italy. You've got some German numbers that aren't showing, you know, big growth. And we've got the exporter story playing through with China risk, blah, blah, blah. So on the currency side of it, I'm starting to think we're going to struggle. And yes, we'll go, we'll go to 115 before year end and we'll head towards 120, but I'm not sure we're going to do a heck of a lot above there. What do you think? Yeah. I think the, the the issue here is in terms of the economy is that the U.S. has high inflation and reasonably strong growth, but inflation is right. coming down; it's coming under control. Whereas in Europe, in the eurozone and in the U.K., uh, you've got high inflation, which doesn't seem to be coming down very well. On the other hand, you've got quite weak growth, um, teetering on the brink of recession. I mean, they keep revising the numbers, so you know. One month they're actually in recession and then they revise it away and it's not quite a recession. But bottom line is that GDP is flat, basically, and has been for several quarters now. One quarter goes up a touch and the next quarter goes down a touch or it's flat. I mean, it's basically you've got a stagnant economy. And by the way, those economies are both pretty much where they were at the end of 2019. So there's, there's really no growth. A little bit more in the Eurozone than the UK, but not much. So no, no growth, that should be gradually pushing unemployment up and gradually uh, easing the inflation pressures. The problem for the ECB and the Bank of England is do they need to give the economy another push down uh, with higher rates or can they just wait for the this slow growth to, to work through? And of course, they've got to forecast what's going to happen to growth over the next few months. And there's some signs that actually might improve slightly. And the reason for that really is the decline in energy prices in Europe, which is actually meaning that people have more money in their pockets. So it's a tough call for, for the Bank of England and, and the Eurozone. They, they do seem to have stickier inflation than the US does, um, but they have slower growth. And I think this is reflected in the, the foreign exchange market, that you, know, you can tell a story that uh, there's terrible inflation in Europe, so they're going to need to raise rates. On the other hand, there's already weak growth, so maybe they don't. Yeah. So I think this is what's uh, creating the sort of two-way traffic. Yeah, which, which makes sense, because we always thought 112 would be a hurdle for the euro dollar and uh, to clear mm-hmm. it on a successful basis. I, I have to admit, writing last month's currency focus was, was a nightmare for me, because I was so convinced that we were on the right side of the cycle. When you start looking at all the underlying stuff, you go, ugh. This is going to be a struggle mm-hmm. to get back to 115, 120. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. That, that kind of frames my mindset of it's going to be a horrible, horrible year of slow grinding moves and choppy little things. And you look back and go, oh, yeah, of course, you know, we moved from 112 to 120. But the day to day grind is going to be horrible. Uh, um, if, if I'm right, that we will see a bit more economic weakness, growth weakness in the US, then that's obviously going to support our story that uh, dollar is going to be weak because that would convince yes. people that. Uh, you know, the Fed is not going to raise rates anymore, and the next move is is certainly down. And I think that would that would be a a great trigger. So we'll have to see if that happens. I think currency traders around the world will be 
printing out pictures of John Carvley putting him above the computer monitors and go, come on, John, let's hope you're right, because we need a strong trend yeah. to actually well, get Yeah, I mean, the trouble is that the data isn't really showing that at the moment. I mean, the the latest nowcast, it's, it's very early days, but the, the uh, nowcast for Q3, which is only just in by about what, five weeks, is showing growth of three and a half, four percent for the US in the third quarter. That's stopping so growth. I, I mean, know. for an uh, economy as, as big as the US, those are big numbers. Big numbers, yes, yes. We've had two pretty so, good quarters, uh, and that would be, uh, as you say, a stonking number. Now, if you're the Fed, I mean, and we're going off track here, but if you're the Fed, you have access to all that data, of course, right? Because the other guy's producing a lot of it. What would you think? They can't be thinking, when when do we cut next? They've got to be thinking, how high do we go? Is that right? Yeah, that's why I say, uh, although we had a you know reasonably soft CPI today, much as expected, uh, I think um, it certainly doesn't take uh, rate rises off the table. We're going to have another CPI before the Fed, of course. Uh, and we've got more employment data to come, a lot more data actually before the Fed. Um, yep. It's not off the table at the moment that they will raise rates again. I think it's probably more likely that they won't, that they'll you know have another pause and maybe think about it more carefully the following meeting. Now, ahead of the Fed meeting, we also have the Jackson Hole uh, Symposium where they all get together in Wyoming and have a really good time. Do you think that the market is going to be looking at this with any expectation that some big announcement is going to be made or is it going to be another damn squib? Well, I think people treat the Jackson Hole as a chance to understand how the Fed is thinking and how other central banks are thinking. They don't usually, you don't usually get big announcements and, you know, unless they're talking about QE or something, as we saw in the past. I think we've only ever had one big announcement, Ben, ever since yeah. then, everybody's yeah. focused on it. It's, I mean, it, it, it is it is always interesting because, but, but having said that, I mean, they, the, the Federal Reserve people, they make so many speeches and we have Powell's press conference where he's been very consistent in the way he's been looking at the world now for, for a long time. So I'd be surprised if there's anything major there. I think there might be more attention on on what the Europeans are saying and what the Japanese are saying. Yes, I mean, I, I think that's one of the things that we looked at um, before was that Bank of Japan has to move some ways towards getting rid of some of their stimulus. And you made the case that basically they're going to take their time. They're not in a hurry. Inflation's barely getting to where they want it to be. So they have time on their side to move. And you've been proven right so far. The only thing they've done in a meaningful manner was to suggest that they're shifting where they're going to be supporting uh, bonds in terms of, you know, from 0.5% 10-year JGB yields to 1% uh, yields. And then that's a minor but important shift, right? And it did rattle the bond markets for a couple of minutes or maybe a day. So do you think that's it? Or do you think that they're going to be saying, yeah, at some stage we're going to quit buying every single share and every single bond. We're going to move our base rates from negative 0.1 to maybe a positive or something? Do you think that could happen this year? Or? No, not this year, I wouldn't think. Um, you know, I think that the Japanese economy is not all that strong. Um, and they are, like most forecasters, still anticipating a slowdown in the US. We've already got a big slowdown in China. I right. think the way that Bank of Japan looks at it is, uh, yes, they've got wages and inflation higher than, than target for now, but they, they see that as a sort of temporary thing and they don't think it will necessarily continue. So I think that um, you know, changing the, the band for the 10 year, it's more of a sort of technical thing to just stop them always beating up against the barrier, um, which I think they right. didn't really like that. 
because you can see the tenure hasn't gone to one percent. I mean, it, it's gone up a little bit, but it hasn't no, gone to one percent. Yeah, it's gone up to like yeah, zero point five seven or something. I think it's where it is today. Yeah. So it was an adjustment, but not you know end of the world sort of thing. Um, That's right. But John, right. you mentioned China, and we were just doing our the review of the calls since we set up Tricia, which you've been working on for some time. And one of the you know a couple of the big calls were on China, where we or you in particular, with, along with James, our head of investment solutions, you guys are both China watchers with a lot of experience. And you were 100% right in looking for some of the structural problems that, that are basically stalling Chinese growth and are continuing to stall Chinese growth. I think you recently wrote a blog or the first part of a blog and you put it up on our website, tricio-advisors.com, where you said you know China has narrow options these days given some of the debt they've built up in other areas on how to stimulate the economy going going further. For the FX markets, though, China has always been a source of swings for Aussie, Kiwi, Canada, maybe the RAND, maybe some other currencies, obviously the Korean one and the Japanese yen as well as being trade contenders, if you will, versus China. And we've looked at that before in blogs as well up on our website. But if you're right and China has certainly limited options, then surely the currency is going to come under more pressure, right? You think so? Yes. I mean, I think one of one of the reasons they don't have much in the way of pol- options on the monetary policy side is they don't want the currency to be too weak. Because if it looks, if they keep cutting interest rates, given that US rates have risen so much, then they're going to see more right. capital flight. Now, it's not easy to get money out of China, but it is possible. Uh, and they are anxious to avoid too much of that. So, so they haven't really got that option on the monetary policy front to do a big, easier policy. And then what I've argued is that on the fiscal side, they have much less space than people often realize that the government deficit is already quite high. Government debt, when you, when you add in everything, is already quite high. So they really don't have huge scope. Now, they'll do some fiscal stimulus, but I think they'll do probably less than, than people think they should. So this idea that they're going to escape from deflation with a massive fiscal stimulus, I just don't see it. I think they're going to have to, have but, to do but see, much the flip more. side of the coin, John, is currency, we both agree you can't devalue your way to prosperity. I mean, that's just one of those right. things that you always argue about in FX circles. I mean, But surely there are benefits if China lets their currency go from 7.3, 7.2, where it is now, through 7.3, 7.4, back up to around 7.5, 7.8 over 12 months. And if they do it over 12 months or 15 months, nobody will care. And that should help exporters, right? It should help exporters some. Um, and it will also tend to be slightly inflationary for China, which is, you know, if they're trying to escape from deflation, they will re- regard that as a positive thing. Um, I thought you weren't allowed you say, to say deflation anymore in China. If I, if I was in China or Hong Kong, I wouldn't be able to, but here I can. <laughs> But that, that's just it. They, they do actually have a deflationary problem, right? I think they do, yes. I mean, uh, in the sense, obviously, we had deflation there with consumer prices now negative year on year. So in, technically speaking, they have it. But uh, economists use the word deflation also to talk about an economy which is weak, where prices are falling because supply is greater than demand. Uh, and that's essentially the problem they have, that uh, they have excess supply of just about everything. Uh, and that's that's bringing prices down. And it's not it's difficult for them because they they've got obviously the the world industrial recession um, across the world industry is basically in recession already and obviously china is the greatest industrial power there is so they're particularly suffering from that and then the property sector which i had thought might be starting to improve by now but the recent news has been quite bad we've had another big developer i think the biggest private developer in fact 
uh, missing a bond payment uh, just this week. Um, and that's quite big news. That, that will be known all over China. That will reinforce the view that uh, it's not a good time to buy, buy property, at least not from a private sector developer. So they're not out of the woods at all on those two fronts. And if you're not building houses, you don't need all that steel capacity and, and cement capacity and glass capacity. So massive excess capacity there. So you don't need to invest any more in that. And that sort of feeds through to the whole economy. So what, what I argued in the blog the other day was that um, people in China have basically lost confidence in continued economic growth. And once you do that, once you lose the confidence that growth is going to be five, six, seven percent or more every year, you, you hold back. You don't invest. You don't hire people. You're just much more cautious. And of course, that becomes a self-fulfilling effect because you're not getting that, that growth. You're not getting that spending. So I think that's and the then, dilemma. The flip side, yeah, the flip side for us, John, is let's say you know, you're sitting in China with a couple of billion dollars and you're not going to put it to work domestically, then the temptation is to invest abroad. And let's say you're abroad and you're seeing weak growth in China, you don't see any near-term hopes of revival, then you're not going to invest inwards into China either. So that just puts natural pressure on the currency, right? Yes. I mean, who wants to invest in China at the moment? If you're a, if you're a foreign company, you're not going to do it because of the increasing sanctions and restrictions coming out of the US and more announced this week on investment in uh, high-tech uh, companies in China. And if the US does those things, then you know, Europe, the UK and Japan have to look at that as well. It's, uh, so that right. it, it becomes a problem for foreign companies. They're, they're basically trying to get a new supply chain excluding China. So they're not going to invest in there anymore. And if you're, a, if you're a Chinese or a Hong Konger with money outside China, so you are free to do with it what you want, um, why bring it into China? It's just not going to do it. Yeah, I mean, at some stage, I think we both agree, Chinese assets will be very tempting and the price will be right and the potential upside will be a lot bigger than maybe what it is now. That might tempt in foreign direct investment, that might tempt local people to go back in and you know all that sort of stuff. But right now, it looks like we're still on the way down in terms of economic risk, I guess. So that's enough to keep people on the sidelines. Talking about economies in trouble and investment not coming in. The UK, it's been making, well, officials have been making noise all year long about how lackluster the FTSE investment is and how pension funds don't invest because of all sorts of problems in the way that they're set up in terms of legislation, you know, in terms of trying to balance up portfolio returns with the risks that they have. So they all went into the leverage bond idea for the last 20 years. Is the UK actually going to become tempting for investors? Because my view is, a strong currency actually doesn't work against the UK. It's actually working for it because ever since 2016, anybody who's put currency into the UK from outside has basically not seen a really great reward on the currency side anyway. So I think a strong pound won't deter investors. I think a strong pound would be seen as a sign of, you know, the UK is coming back. The UK has upside potential. And if I buy a UK share, I'm not going to automatically lose on the FX side, which is what maybe a lot of US investors have been thinking since you know the referendum in 2016. Do you kind of agree or disagree? I kind of agree. Um, yeah, I mean, I think the UK has gone through such instability over the last five years with different prime ministers and Brexit and, and, and the sort of Liz Truss debacle. And now there's concern that inflation is very sticky and, you know, Bank of England's trying to deal with that. The concern that perhaps inflation could really get stuck in the UK, um, you know, up in the five or six percent range, not even at three percent. Like in like in like in the US, so there's that, and there's this. Uh, you look at you know how the FTSE has done over the years, and you know it doesn't look very attractive compared to North American markets. So, 
So I think th there's lots of reasons for being a bit cautious, but I think if if you can see some stability over time, and I would also point to the changing pattern in the Labour Party, which is the opposition party, which will probably win the election at the end of next year. Uh, and, and that's becoming much more, um, much easier to live with, I think, as a as a political party than it used to be. It's going back to the Blair type policies. So again, that, that suggests a degree of stability over the next several years, which I think does does give you grounds for some optimism. Just as a side note, if for, for, for listeners who do access our monthly publications, the very first page, I had that chart of the FTSE 100 versus the FTSE 100 total return. The total return index is a lot better. And that's the problem right. with FTSE 100 is that it's actually a dividend paying index, isn't it? Yes, no, so, you're absolutely right. Yeah, but even allowing for yeah, that, a lot of the returns and even allowing for that, the returns in the US have been better. But but you're right, it's much better yes. than just looking at the FTSE. Yeah. Well, in my nightmare scenario of sideways markets, high paying dividend stocks are actually a winner. So for the pound, I mean, we, we saw it get up above 130. We were all cheering. Then it went down to 126 and change, 127. And it's all, you know, booing. And this could, again, the slow grinding move. I'm still looking for 130 to give way on a sustained basis and a test of the top of the range around 140, 142, 144 over the next six to 12 months. You're still in line with that view as well? or I am in line, although I think like you, I'm slightly less confident of it because that's quite a big, uh, big, big move from where we are still. I mean, getting over 130, yes, but uh, getting up to 140 is uh, you know, quite a big move. We haven't been there for a while. So I'm with you. It's, as I say, it's this, I think, those sort of shorter term moves are really conditioned on a lot on interest rates, what the central banks do, what yes. growth does. I think we probably will see more of a rate rise in the UK than in the US. Quite how that will work out in terms of numbers, I'm not sure. Maybe the US doesn't move and the UK does. Maybe the US moves one one more and the UK moves two or three more. So I think that's most likely to happen. But it's it's a it's a tight one. As I've said before, I tend to look at currencies in the sort of long term sense and. And I do think right. that we're sort of on on a sort of in the in the low area still for sterling. I still think thinking on a ten year view, we will see one forty one fifty. Uh, I would think within that time period. Uh, so I think we're sort of below a kind of long run equilibrium level at the moment, and that's why I think there's there's some buoyancy there which will help to take us up. John, let's end on that note where we're looking for cable to head back to one fifty, a level we haven't seen since June two thousand sixteen. Does that right. work for you? Right. Yeah. It's a good place to end. Yeah, bit of optimism. Thank you very much for joining us. We have um, podcasts on the on the Spotify and other areas where you listen to your podcasts. And please look at our blogs again. And if you know, contact us. And we're always happy to uh, try to get questions into our podcasts and our blogs from interested people. Thank you very much, John. Thank you for your time. Thanks, Jerry.